The Lord has ten thousand ways of making good his word. Some reader of this very paragraph may be living from hand to mouth, having no stock of money or store of food, yea, not knowing where the next meal will come from. But if you be a child of his, God will not fail you, and if your trust be in him, it shall not be disappointed. In some way or other the Lord will provide. O fear the Lord, ye saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Psalm 34, 9 and 10 Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, food and clothing, shall be added unto you. Matthew 6:33. These promises are addressed to us to encourage us to cleave unto God and do his will. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening. Had he so pleased, the Lord could have fed Elijah by angels rather than by ravens. There was then in Israel a hospitable Obadiah, who kept a secret table in a cave for a hundred of God's prophets. 18 verse 4 Moreover, there were seven thousand faithful Israelites who had not bowed the knee to Baal any one of whom would have doubtless deemed himself highly honored to have sustained so eminent a one as Elijah. But God preferred to make use of fowls of the air. Why? Was it not so as to give both the Tishbite and us a signal proof of his absolute command over all creatures and thereby of his worthiness to be trusted in the greatest extremities? And what is the more striking is this, that Elijah was better fed than the prophets who were sustained by Obadiah, for they had only bread and water, 18.4, whereas Elijah had meat also. Though God may not employ literal ravens in ministering unto his needy servants and people today, yet he often works just as definitely and wondrously in disposing the selfish, covetous, the hard-hearted, and the grossly immoral to render assistance to his own. He can, and often does induce them, contrary to their natural dispositions and miserly habits, to deal kindly and liberally in ministering to our necessities. He hath the hearts of all in his hand, and turneth them whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 What thanks are due unto the Lord for sending his provisions by such instruments? We doubt not that quite a number of our readers could bear similar testimony to that of the present writer when he says, How often in the past did God, in the most unlooked-for manner, provide for our necessities? We had as soon expected ravens to bring us food as that we should receive from those who actually bestowed it. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening. Observe, no vegetables, fruit, or sweets are mentioned. There were no luxuries, but simply the bare necessities. Having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. 1 Timothy 6.8 But are we? Alas, how little of this godly contentment is now seen, even among the Lord's people. How many of them set their hearts upon the things which the godless make idols of? Why are our young people dissatisfied with the standard of comfort which suffice their parents? Self must be denied if we are to show ourselves followers of him who had not where to lay his head. And he drank up the brook, verse 6. Let us not overlook this clause, for no detail in scripture is meaningless. 
water in the brook was as truly and as definitely a provision of God's as the bread and meat which the ravens brought. Has not the Holy Spirit recorded this detail for the purpose of teaching us that the common mercies of providence, as we turn them, are also the gift of God? If we have been supplied with what is needful to sustain our bodies, then gratitude and acknowledgement are due to our God. And yet how many there are, even among professing Christians, who sit down to their meals without first asking God's blessing, and rising therefrom without thanking him for what they have had. In this matter, too, Christ has left us an example. For on the occasion of his feeding the multitude, we are told that Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples. John 6.11 Then let us not fail to do the same. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. Verse 7 Weigh attentively these five words, and it came to pass. They mean far more than it merely happened. They signify that the divine decree concerning the same was now fulfilled. It came to pass in the good providence of God, who orders all things after the counsel of his own will, and without whose personal permission nothing occurs, not even the falling of a sparrow to the ground. Matthew 10.29 how this should comfort the children of God and assure them of their security. There is no such thing as chance with reference to God. Wherever this term occurs in the Bible, it is always in connection with man, referring to something taking place without his design. Everything which occurs in this world is just as God ordained from the beginning. Acts 2.23 Endeavor to recall that fact, dear reader, the next time you are in difficulty and distress. If you are one of God's people, he has provided for every contingency in his everlasting covenant, and his mercies are sure. 2 Samuel 23.5 and Isaiah 55.3 And after a while, or margin, at the end of days, by this expression Lightfoot understood after a year, which is frequently the sense of that phrase in scripture. However this may be, after an interval of some duration the brook dried up. Krumacher declares that the very name Cherith denotes drought, as though it usually dried up more quickly than any other brook. Most probably it was a mountain stream which flowed down a narrow ravine. Water was supplied it by the way of nature or ordinary providence, but the course of nature was now altered. The purpose of God was accomplished and the time of the prophet's departure into another hiding place had arrived. The drying up of the brook was a forceful reminder to Elijah of the transitoriness of everything mundane. The fashion of this world passeth away, 1 Corinthians 7.31, and therefore here have we no continuing city, Hebrews 13.14. Change and decay is stamped upon everything down here. There is nothing stable under the sun. We should therefore be prepared for sudden changes in our circumstances. The ravens, as heretofore, brought the prophet flesh and bread to eat each morning and evening, but he could not subsist without water. But why should not God supply the water in a miraculous way as he did the food? Most certainly he could have done so. He could have brought water out of a rock, as he did for Israel, and for Samson out of a jawbone. Judges 15, verses 18 and 19. Yes, but the Lord is not confined to any one method. 
but has a variety of ways in bringing the same end to pass. God sometimes works one way and sometimes another, employing this means today and that tomorrow in accomplishing his counsels. God is sovereign and acts not according to rule and rote. He ever acts according to his own good pleasure, and this he does in order to display his all-sufficiency, to exhibit his manifold wisdom, and to demonstrate the greatness of his power. God is not tied, and if he closes one door, he can easily open another. That the brook dried up. Cherith would not flow forever, no, not even for the prophet. Elijah himself must be made to feel the awfulness of that calamity which he had announced. Ah, my reader, it is no uncommon thing for God to suffer his own dear children to become enwrapped in the common calamities of offenders. True, he makes a real difference both in the use and the issue of their stripes, but not so in the infliction of them. We are living in a world which is under the curse of the holy God, and therefore man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Nor is there any escape from trouble as long as we are left in this scene. God's own people, though the objects of the everlasting love, are not exempted, for many are the afflictions of the righteous. Why? For various reasons and with various designs, one of them being to wean our hearts from things below and cause us to set our affections on things above. The brook dried up. To outward appearance that would have seemed a real misfortune, to carnal reason an actual calamity. Let us endeavor to visualize Elijah there at Cherith. The drought was everywhere, the famine throughout the whole land, and now his own brook began to dry up. Day by day its waters gradually lessened, until soon there was barely a trickle, and then it entirely ceased. Had he grown increasingly anxious and gloomy? Did he say, What shall I do? Must I stay here and perish? Has God forgotten me? Did I take a wrong step after all in coming here? It all depended upon how steadily his faith remained in exercise. If faith was active, then he admired the goodness of God in causing that supply of water to last so long. How much better for our souls if instead of mourning over our losses, we praise God for continuing his mercies to us so long, especially when we bear in mind that they are only lent to us and that we deserve not the least of them. Though dwelling in the place of God's appointing, yet Elijah is not exempted from those deep exercises of soul which are ever the necessary discipline of a life of faith. True, the ravens had, in obedience to the divine command, paid him their daily visits, supplying him with food morning and evening, and the brook had flowed on its tranquil course. But faith must be tested and developed. The servant of God must not settle down on his lees, but pass from form to form in the school of the Lord, and having learned through grace the difficult lessons of one, he must now go forward to grapple with others yet more difficult. Perhaps the reader may now be facing the drying brook of popularity, of failing health, of diminishing business, of decreasing friendships. Ah, a drying brook is a real trouble. Why does God suffer the brook to dry up? To teach us to trust in himself and not in his gifts. As a general rule, he does not for long provide his people in the same way and by the same means, lest they should rest in them and expect help from them. 
Sooner or later God shows us how dependent we are upon himself, even for supplies of everyday mercies. But the heart of the prophet must be tested, to show whether his trust was in Cherith or in the living God. So it is in his dealings with us, how often we think we are trusting in the Lord, when really we are resting on comfortable circumstances, and when they become uncomfortable, how much faith have we? Chapter 6 Directed to Zarephath He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 This is a rule which it is both our wisdom and welfare to heed in all the very details of our lives, never more needed by God's people than in this mad age of speed and hurry. Most profitably may we apply it to our reading and study of God's word. It is not so much the amount of time we spend upon the scriptures as the measure in which we prayerfully meditate upon that which is immediately before us, that so largely determines the degree of benefit the soul receives therefrom. By passing too quickly from one verse to another, by failing to picture vividly before our minds the details before us, and by not taking pains to discover the practical lessons which may be drawn from historical events, we are greatly the losers. It is by putting ourselves in the position of the one we are reading about and thinking what we would most likely have done in such circumstances that we receive the most help. An illustration of what we have in view in the above paragraph is supplied by the stage we now have reached in the life of Elijah. At the close of our last chapter we had arrived at the point where it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up. Let us not be in too big a hurry to turn unto what follows. Rather should we endeavor to visualize the prophet's situation and ponder the trial which confronted him. Picture the Tishbite there in his lowly retreat. Day by day the water in the brook steadily diminished. Did his hopes do likewise? Did his songs of worship become feebler and less frequent as the streamlet rolled less noiselessly over its rocky bed? Was his harp hung upon the willows as he gave himself up to anxious thought and restlessly paced to and fro? There is nothing in scripture to intimate any such thing. God keeps in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed upon himself. Yes, but in order thereto, the heart must be steadfastly confident in him. Ah, it is at this very point. Do we trust in the Lord in trying circumstances? Or are we merely fair-weather Christians? Is it much to be feared that had we been there by the drying brook, our minds had been distracted, and instead of waiting patiently for the Lord, had fretted and schemed, wondering what we had better do next? And then one morning Elijah awoke to find the brook altogether dried up, and his supply of sustenance completely cut off. What then should he do? Must he remain there and perish? For he could not expect to live long without something to drink. Must he not now take matters into his own hands and do the best he could for himself? Would it not be better to retract his steps and risk the vengeance of Ahab than remain where he was and die of thirst? Can we doubt that Satan plied him with such temptations in his hour of testing? The Lord had ordered him, Hide thyself by the brook Cherith, adding, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there, and it is striking and blessed to see that he had remained there even after his supply of water had ceased. 
The prophet did not move his quarters until he received definite instructions from the Lord to do so. It was thus with Israel of old in the wilderness as they journeyed to the promised land. At the commandment of the Lord the children of Israel journeyed, and at the commandment of the Lord they pitched. As long as the cloud abode upon the tabernacle they rested in their tents, and when the cloud tarried long upon the tabernacle many days, then the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and journeyed not. And so it was when the cloud was a few days upon the tabernacle, according to the commandment of the Lord they abode in their tents, and according to the commandment of the Lord they journeyed. And so it was, when the cloud abode from even unto morning, and that the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they journeyed, whether it was by day or by night, two days or a month or a year, the children of Israel abode in their tents and journeyed not. Numbers 9, verses 18 through 22. And that is expressly recorded for our instruction and comfort, and it is both our wisdom and welfare to heed the same. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath. 1 Kings 17, 8 and 9. Did not this show plainly how worthless and needless was any carnal scheming on the part of the prophet? Had he indulged in such? God had not forgotten to be gracious, nor would he leave his servant without the needed direction or guidance when his time had arrived to grant the same. How loudly ought this to speak unto our hearts, we who are far too full of our own plans and devisings. Instead of heeding that injunction, My soul, wait thou only upon God, we contrive some way of getting out of our difficulties, and then ask the Lord to prosper the same. If Samuel does not arrive just when we expect, then we try to force things. 1 Samuel 13.12 Let it be duly noted, however, that before God's word came afresh to Elijah, both his faith and his patience had been put to the proof. In going to Cherith, the prophet had acted under divine orders, and therefore was he under God's special care. Could he then come to any real harm under such guardianship? He must therefore remain where he is until God directs him to leave the place, no matter how unpleasant conditions may become. So with us, when it is clear that God has placed us where we are, there we must abide, 1 Corinthians 7.20, even though our continuance in it may be attended with hardships and apparent hazard. If, on the other hand, Elijah had left Cherith of his own accord, how could he count upon the Lord being with him both to provide for his wants and to deliver him from his enemies? The same applies to us with equal force today. We are now to consider the further provision which the Lord graciously made for his servant in his retirement. And the word of the Lord came unto him. How often has his word come to us, sometimes directly, sometimes through one of his servants, and we have wickedly refused to obey it. If not in actual words, our ways have been like that of the rebellious Jews, who in response to the affectionate remonstrance of Jeremiah replied, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. 44.16 On other occasions we have been like those spoken of in Ezekiel 33, verses 21 and 32. They sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. 
for with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song, of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear thy words, but they do them not. And why? Because the word of God crosses our perverse wills and requires what is contrary to our natural inclinations. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Verses 8 and 9. This meant that Elijah must be disciplined by still further trials and humblings. First of all, the name of the place to which God ordered his servant to go is deeply suggestive, for Zarephath means refining, coming from a root that signifies a crucible, the place where metals are melted. There lay before Elijah not only a further testing of his faith, but also the refining of it, for a crucible is for the purpose of separating dross from the fine gold. The experience which now confronted our prophet was a very trying and distasteful one to flesh and bone, for to go from Cherith to Zarephath involved a journey of seventy-five miles across the desert. Ah, the place of refining is not easily reached, and involves that from which all of us naturally shrink. It is also to be carefully noted that Zarephath was in Zidon, that is to say, it was in the territory of the Gentiles, outside the land of Palestine. Our Lord threw emphasis on this detail in his first recorded public address as being one of the earliest intimations of the favors which God purposed to extend unto the Gentiles, saying, There were many widows in Israel at that time, Luke 4:25 and 26, who might or might not have gladly sheltered and succored the prophet, but unto none of them was he sent. What a severe reflection on the chosen nation to pass them by. But what is yet more remarkable is the fact that Zidon was the very place from which Jezebel, the wicked corrupter of Israel, had come. 1 Kings 16.31 How passing strange are the ways of God, yet ever ordered by infinite wisdom. As Matthew Henry says, To show Jezebel the impotency of her malice, God will find a hiding place for his servant even in her country. Equally striking it is to observe the particular person whom God selected to entertain Elijah. It was not a rich merchant or one of the chief men of Zidon, but a poor widow, desolate and dependent, who was made both willing and able to minister unto him. It is usually God's way and to his glory to make use of and place honor upon the weak and foolish things of the world. In commenting upon the ravens which brought bread and flesh to the prophet while he sojourned by the brook, we called attention to the sovereignty of God and the strangeness of the instruments he is pleased to employ. The same truth is vividly illustrated here. A poor widow, a Gentile, dwelling in Zidon, the original home of Jezebel. Think it not strange then, my reader, if God's dealings with you have been the very opposite of what you had expected. The Lord is a law to himself, and implicit trust and unreserved submission is what he requires from us. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Verse 9. Man's extremity is God's opportunity. When Cherith is dried up, then shall Zarephath be opened. 
how this should teach us to refrain from carking care about the future. Remember, dear reader, that tomorrow will bring with it tomorrow's God. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Make thee sure and certain promises, for they are the word of him that cannot lie, the stay of your soul. Make them your reply to every question of unbelief and every foul aspersion of the devil. Observe that once more God sent Elijah not to a river, but a brook, not to some wealthy person with great resources, but to a poor widow with scanty means. Ah, the Lord would have his servant remain a pensioner upon himself, and as much dependent on his power and goodness as before. This was indeed a severe testing of Elijah, not only to take a long journey through the desert, but to enter into an experience which was entirely opposed to his natural feelings, his religious training, and spiritual inclinations, to be made dependent upon a Gentile in a heathen city. He was required to leave the land of his fathers and sojourn at the headquarters of Baal worship. Let us duly weigh this truth that God's plan for Elijah demanded from him unquestioning obedience. They who would walk with God must not only trust him implicitly, but be prepared to be entirely regulated by his word. Not only must our faith be trained by a great variety of providences, but our obedience by the divine commandments. Vain is it to suppose that we can enjoy the smile of Jehovah unless we be in subjection to his precepts. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 5.22 Directly we become disobedient, our communion with God is broken, and chastisement becomes our portion. Elijah must go and dwell at Zarephath, but how could he subsist there when he knew no one in that place? Why, the same one who had given him this order had also made arrangements for his reception and maintenance. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. This does not necessarily mean that the Lord had acquainted her with his mind. The sequel plainly shows otherwise. Rather do we understand these words to signify that God had appointed it in his counsels and would effect it by his providences. Compare his, I have commanded the ravens to feed thee, verse 4. When God calls any of his people to go to a place, they may rest assured that he has fully provided for them in his foredetermined purpose. God secretly disposed this widow to receive and sustain his servant. All hearts are in the Lord's hand, and he turneth them whithersoever he pleases. He can incline them to show us favor and do us acts of kindness, even though we be entire strangers to them. Many times in widely different parts of the world has this been the experience of the writer. Not only was the faith and obedience of Elijah tested by God's call for him to go to Zarephath, but his humility was also put to the proof. He was called to receive charity at the hands of a desolate widow. How humbling to pride to be made dependent upon one of the poorest of the poor. How withering to all self-confidence and self-sufficiency to accept relief from one who did not appear to have sufficient for her own urgent needs. Ah, it takes pressure of circumstances to make us bow to what is repugnant to our natural inclinations. 
More than once in the past did we feel it acutely to receive gifts and succor from those who had little of this world's goods. But we were comforted by the word, and certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. Luke 8, 2 and 3. The widow speaks of weakness and desolation. Israel was widowed at this time, and therefore Elijah was made to feel it in his own soul. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Verse 10. In this Elijah gave proof that he was indeed the servant of God, for the path of a servant is the path of obedience. Let him forsake that path, and he ceases to be a servant. The servant and obedience are as inseparably linked together as the workman and work. Many today talk about their service for Christ as though he needed their assistance, as though his cause would not prosper unless they patronized and furthered it, as though the holy ark must inevitably fall to the ground unless their unholy hands uphold it. This is all wrong, seriously wrong, the product of Satan-fed pride. What is so much needed by us is service to Christ, submission to his yoke, surrender to his will, subjection to his commandments. Any Christian service other than walking in his precepts is a human invention, fleshly energy, strange fire. So he arose and went to Zarephath. How can I minister the holy things of God unless I be myself treading the path of obedience? The Jew of Paul's day was very self-important, yet he brought no glory unto God. And art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish. Romans 2:19 and 20 And then the apostle puts him to the test. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Verse 21 The principle there enunciated is a searching one of wide application. By it each of us who preach the gospel should diligently measure himself. Thou that preachest that God requireth truth in the inward parts, art thou a man of thy word? Thou that teachest we should provide things honest in the sight of all men, hast thou any unpaid debts? Thou that exhortest believers to be insistent in prayer, spendest thou much time in the secret place? If not, be not surprised if thy sermons meet with little response. From the pastoral peace of Gilead to the exacting ordeal of confronting the king, from the presence of Ahab to the solitude of Cherith, from the dried-up brook to Zarephath, the disturbances and displacements of providence are a necessity if our spiritual lives are to prosper. Moab hath been at ease from his youth, and he hath settled on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Jeremiah 48.11 The figure used here is suggestive. Because Moab had long been at peace, she had become lethargic and flabby, or, like grape juice unrefined, she had been spoiled. God was emptying Elijah from vessel to vessel so that the scum might rise to the surface and be removed. This stirring of our nest, this constant changing of our circumstances, is not a pleasant experience, but it is essential if we are to be preserved from settling on our lees. But alas, so far from appreciating the gracious designs of the refiner, how often we are petulant and murmur when he empties us from vessel to vessel. 
So he arose and went to Zarephath. He made no demur, but did as he was bid. He made no delay, but set off on his long and unpleasant journey at once. He was as ready to go on foot as though God had provided a chariot. He was as ready to cross the desert as if God had bidden him to luxuriate in a shady garden. He was as ready to apply for sustenance from a Gentile widow as if God had told him to return to his friends in Gilead. It might appear to carnal reason that he was putting his head into the lion's mouth, courting certain disaster by making for the land of Zidon, where the agents of Jezebel would be numerous. But since God had bidden him to go, it was right for him to comply, and wrong not to do so, and therefore he could count upon the divine protection. Let it be duly noted that the Lord gave Elijah no more information as to his future residence and maintenance than that it was to be at Zarephath and by a widow. In a time of famine we should be profoundly thankful that the Lord provides for us at all, and be quite content to leave the mode of doing so with him. If the Lord undertakes to guide us in our life's journey, we must be satisfied with his doing it step by step. It is rarely his way to reveal to us much beforehand. In most cases, we know little or nothing in advance. How can it be otherwise if we are to walk by faith? We must trust him implicitly for the full development of his plan concerning us. But if we are really walking with God, taking heed to our ways according to his word, he will gradually make things plain. His providences will clear up our difficulties, and what we know not now we shall know hereafter. Thus it was with Elijah. Chapter 7 A Widow's Extremity And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. 1 Kings 17, verses 8 and 9. Notice carefully the connection between these two verses. The spiritual significance of this may be the more apparent to the reader if we state it thus. Our actions must be regulated by the word of God if our souls are to be nourished and strengthened. That was one of the outstanding lessons taught Israel in the wilderness. Their food and refreshment could only be obtained so long as they traveled in the path of obedience. Numbers 9, 18-23 Observe well the sevenfold at the commandment of the Lord in that passage. God's people of old were not allowed to have any plans of their own. The Lord arranged everything for them, when they should journey and when they should encamp. Had they refused to follow the cloud, there had been no manna for them. Thus it was with Elijah, for God has given the same rule unto his ministers as to them unto whom they minister. They must practice what they preach, or woe be unto them. The prophet was not allowed to have any will of his own, and to say how long he should remain at Cherith, or whither he should go from there. The word of Jehovah settled everything for him, and by obeying the same he obtained sustenance. What searching and important truth is there here for every Christian? The path of obedience is the only one of blessing and enrichment. Ah, may we not discover at this very point the cause of our leanness and the explanation of our unfruitfulness. Is it not because we have been so self-willed that our soul is starved and our faith weak? Is it not because there has been so little denying of self 
taking up the cross and following Christ that we are so sickly and joyless? Nothing so ministers to the health and joy of our souls as being in subjection to the will of him with whom we have to do. And the preacher must heed this principle too as well as the ordinary Christian. The preacher must himself tread the path of obedience if he would be used by the Holy One. How could Elijah have afterwards said with so much assurance on Mount Carmel, If the Lord be God, follow him if he had previously followed a course of self-pleasing and insubordination. As we pointed out in our last chapter, the correlation of service is obedience. The two things are joined together. As soon as I cease to obey my master, I am no longer his servant. In this connection, let us not forget that one of the noblest titles of our king was the servant of Jehovah. None of us can seek to realize a grander aim than that which was the inspiration of his heart. I came to do thy will, O my God. But let it be frankly pointed out that the path of obedience to God is far from being an easy one to nature. It calls for the daily denying of self, and therefore it can only be traversed as the eye is fixed steadily on the Lord, and the conscience is in subjection to his word. It is true that in keeping his commandments there is great reward, Psalm 19.11, for the Lord will be no man's debtor. Nevertheless, it calls for the setting aside of carnal reason, and to take his place by Cherith, and there be fed by ravens. How could a proud intellect understand that? And now he was bidden to journey to a far distant and heathen city, there to be sustained by a desolate widow, who herself on the point of starvation. Ah, my reader, the path of faith is utterly opposed to what we call common sense. And if you suffer from the same spiritual disease as this writer, then you often find it harder to crucify reason than you do to repudiate the filthy rags of self-righteousness. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow woman was there gathering of sticks. Verse 10. She was so poor that she was without any fuel or any servant to go and obtain a few sticks for her. What encouragement could Elijah derive from appearances? None whatever. Instead, there was everything which was calculated to fill him with doubts and fears if he was occupied with outward circumstances. And he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, Bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And she said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks, that I may go in and dress it for me and my son, so that we may eat it and die. Verses 10 through 12. That was what confronted the prophet when he arrived at his divinely appointed destination. Put yourself in his place, dear reader, and would you not have felt that such a prospect was a gloomy and disquieting one? But Elijah conferred not with flesh and blood, and therefore he was not discouraged by what looked so unpromising a situation. Instead, his heart was sustained by the immutable word of him that cannot lie. Elijah's confidence rested not in favorable circumstances or a goodly outlook, but in the faithfulness of the living God and therefore his faith needed no assurance from the things around him. 
appearances might be dark and dismal, but the eye of faith could pierce the black clouds and see above them the smiling countenance of his provider. Elijah's God was the Almighty, with whom all things are possible. I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. That was what his heart was resting on. What is yours resting on? Are you being kept in peace in this ever-changing scene? Have you made one of his true promises your own? Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Psalm 37.3 God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed. Psalm 46 verses 1 and 2 But let us return to the outward circumstances which confronted Elijah upon his approach to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow woman was there gathering of sticks. God had told his servant to go there and had promised a widow should sustain him. But what her name was, whereabout was her house, and how he was to distinguish her from others, he was not informed. He trusted God to give him further light when he arrived there, nor was he disappointed. He was speedily relieved of any suspense as to the identical person who was to befriend him. Apparently this meeting was quite casual, for there was no appointment between them. Behold, ponder and admire, the widow woman was there. See how the Lord in his providence overrules all events, so that this particular woman should be at the gate at the very time the prophet arrived. Behold, here she comes forth as if on purpose to meet him, yet he did not know her, nor she him. It has all the appearance of being accidental, and yet it was decreed and arranged by God so as to make good his word to the prophet. Ah, my reader, there is no event in this world, however great or however small, which happens by chance. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10.23 How blessed to be assured that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Psalm 37.23 It is sheer unbelief which disconnects the ordinary things of life from God. All our circumstances and experiences are directed by the Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 Cultivate the holy habit of seeing the hand of God in everything that happens to you. When He came to the gate of the city, Behold, the widow woman was there. How this illustrates once more a principle to which we have frequently called the attention of the reader, namely, that when God works, he always works at both ends of the line. If Jacob sends his sons down into Egypt seeking food in time of famine, Joseph is moved to give it unto them. If Israel's spies enter Jericho, there is a Rahab raised up to shelter them. If Mordecai is begging the Lord to come to the deliverance of his threatened people, King Ahasuerus is rendered sleepless, made to search the state records and befriend Mordecai and his fellows. If the Ethiopian eunuch is desirous of an understanding of God's word, Philip is sent to expound it to him. If Cornelius is praying for an opening up of the gospel, Peter is charged to preach it to him. Elijah had received no intimation as to where this widow resided, but divine providence timed her steps 
so that she encountered him at the entrance to the city. What encouragements to faith are these? Here then was the widow, but how was Elijah to know she was the one whom God had ordained should befriend him? Well, he must try her, as the servant of Abraham did Rebekah when he was sent to fetch a wife for Isaac. Eliezer prayed that the damsel to whom he should say, Let down thy pitcher, and she should answer, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she whom thou hast appointed for Isaac. Genesis 24 Rebekah came forth and fulfilled these conditions. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.